Hello, and welcome to the Magic Music Review Podcast. I'm Jim Spangler, your host. Join me each episode as we talk about our love of Disney music. It could be a song, a movie, a short film, a Broadway show, a Disney theme park, or one of the countless other forms Disney music takes. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey through the magic of Disney music on the Magic Music Review. everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of the Magic Music Review podcast. Uh, I'm Jim Spangler, your host. I know we've been gone for a little bit. If you listen to this regularly, we had a little bit longer period between my last episode and this episode. I took a little time off for the holidays. I hope everybody had a nice holidays. Uh, if you're listening to this and it's not the holidays, then, you know, I hope you've had a nice time since between my last episode and now. But anyway... Um, I hope everybody's doing well, and I'm really excited to get back, and I'm excited to share this episode with you uh, of a movie that I thoroughly enjoy. makes me feel like a little kid all the time. Uh, And if you couldn't tell from the opening music there, we're going to be talking about Peter Pan today. I love Peter Pan. It is my oldest daughter's, one of her favorite movies, Um, and I think it's just great. I think it's a great story uh, that everybody relates to. Uh, When J.M. Barry wrote the play... Um, I think he did such a brilliant job of capturing that innocence and imagination and the idea of never wanting to grow up. And I think uh, it's a story for the ages. So let's get into it. So Peter Pan was released in 1953. Uh, it's called an American Animated Fantasy Adventure. I have to tell you, I love all the different categories that they give Disney animated films. They're so complicated. Instead of just saying it's a Disney animated film. Um, It was produced by Walt Disney, and it's based on the play Peter Pan or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up by J.M. Barry, as we said earlier. And it is the 14th Disney animated feature, and it was released through RKO. It was the final animated feature to be released by RKO before Walt established Buena Vista Distribution uh, later in 1953 so he could release his own and distribute his own films. It is also the final film where all nine of his nine old men worked together as directing animators. I think that's so interesting. They were they kind of split up after that. It was the second in a row that featured Catherine Beaumont, Heather Angel, and Bill Thompson. Um, and they all had roles in Alice in Wonderland, which was released right before Peter Pan. And the film was entered in the 1953 Cannes Film Festival. Uh, there was a sequel made in 2002 called Return to Neverland. Um, Not really going to talk about that. I've seen it. We'll just leave it at that. There was also a direct-to-DVD prequel about Tinkerbell. Um, It's a series of DVDs uh, that began in 2008. And I have to say, uh, my younger daughter loves these um, DVDs, loves these Tinkerbell movies, and I do too. Um, I think they're really good, and and some are obviously better than others, uh, but I think they did a really nice job. Um, The quality of the animation is well done. Um, The stories, 
you know, the stories are fine uh, and they're enjoyable. They're entertaining. If nothing else, they're entertaining, especially the one about the pirate fairy, which I love that one. So anyway, and that may have something to do with the fact that I just love pirates. Uh, I don't know. Call me crazy. Uh, But I thought that they were pretty good. Walt actually wanted to do an adaptation of Peter Pan in 1935 after Snow White. Uh, But the rights to the live action were um, owned by Paramount Pictures. And the Hospital for Sick Children in London, which owned the rights to Peter Pan, because J.M. Barry gave them the rights to Peter Pan, offered to have Disney make an agreement with Paramount uh, to create the animated feature, but it just never worked out. And Disney obtained the animated rights in 1939, and they did that by outbidding Fleischer Studios. Walt tried many ways to tell this story. He started out by telling Peter Pan's backstory. Uh, But in a meeting in 1940, he said, let's start right where he visits the house and gets his shadow, because that's really where the story picks up. The production was shelved uh, in 1941 when Pearl Harbor was bombed and the military took over the studios. And they began producing training and war propaganda films so that Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland were put aside. After the war concluded, production continued with Jack Kinney as the director. Disney talked to Mary Martin about doing the voice of Peter Pan because she had just gotten done doing Peter Pan on Broadway. Uh, But his brother Roy didn't really like the idea. He thought that her voice was too heavy and just too sophisticated for the character of Peter Pan, who was supposed to be the boy that never grew up. In a meeting where Kinney was presenting a storyboard and story ideas, at the end, Walt said, you know, I've been thinking about Cinderella. I think that tells you exactly what he thought about the Peter Pan story that was happening. He wasn't happy with where it was going, and, and he really wanted the studio to pick up again from where it was before the war. Uh, and, you know, Cinderella uh, reminded him um, of Snow White, honestly. And so he thought that was a great way to start to build the studio back up. And so Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan were again put on the back burner. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, and then as I said, it was finally released in 1953. So let's talk a little bit about the reception, um, the critics' reception of Peter Pan. Uh, The New York Times criticized it for not being faithful to the original. Imagine that, a Disney animated feature not being faithful to the original story. Uh, Walt was never overly concerned about that. He just wanted a good story. And if you had good bones for a story, then he would make it what he wanted it to be. Uh, But the Times did think that the voice synchronization was very good, and he liked the colors of the movie. Uh, The Chicago Tribune said the backgrounds are delightfully picturesque, the music only so-so, the Times didn't really like the music very much either, and the film is designed for broad effect, uh, with an accent of comedy, of course. Um, I'm sure the youngsters who grow up with cartoons will be right at home with all the characters. So the Tribune, I guess, liked it, uh, but they thought it was childish is basically what I think they're trying to say. Variety stated that the feature cartoon, uh, it's a feature cartoon of enchanting quality. The music score is fine, highlighting the constant buzz of action and comedy, but the songs are less impressive than usually encountered in such a Disney presentation. We'll talk about the songs, obviously, in this podcast, um, and you know, you can come come to your own conclusion. I'll definitely share my conclusion of what I think of the songs, uh, but uh, at the time, they were not... Overly appreciated. Contemporary reviews, though, uh, have been a lot more kind. And this movie has been released a lot um, in in movie theaters. And so, um, you know, reviewers have 
Time has done this movie well, in other words. Reviewers like this movie better now than they did when it was released back in 1953. The film is controversial, though. Uh, and to be honest with you, it kind of surprises me that uh, Disney still releases this just because of their reaction to other things that uh, have been controversial. I'm glad that they kept it out there. Uh, the film has been is criticized for its portrayal of American Indians, and I have to wholeheartedly agree. Uh, there are so many stereotypes that are portrayed in the movie of American Indians, of Native Americans, um, and I, it's just – it's really kind of offensive. Um I mean, at one point, Hook calls them Redskins, the boys, and the Lost Boys call them Injuns, and say that, you know, they're going to go hunting them as an alternative to hunting bears and lions. Um, the song, How the Red Man Got Red, uh, we'll discuss that. Ugh. And while the stereotypes are in J.M. Barry's original, it has also been a struggle for the stage musical, which is so popular. Uh, there's a song that opens up the second act of the stage musical that is really offensive to Native Americans or anybody that has any common sense about how humans should be portrayed. Mark Davis said that if they made the film today, they might have left them out. They might have left the Indians out completely um, or at least not portrayed them in the same manner. Uh, and, and I totally understand that and get that. It's a really rough, really rough section of the movie. The box office, it earned $7 million in its initial release, uh, and it has earned a lifetime gross domestic gross of $87.4 million. And if you adjust it for inflation, if you adjust for inflation from the different releases and stuff and including subsequent releases, uh, the film has grossed $405,593,100. That is a lot of money. And I can assure you that it did not cost that much to make that movie. So uh, it has made uh, lots of money for the studio. And that's one of the reasons that they keep it active because it's so loved in the Disney community. The casting I thought was done really well um, for the characters. Uh, I agree that um, I think Peter Pan needed to be a boy you know, needed to sound young and light and not sophisticated and, and a little innocent, even. So uh, Bobby Driscoll was Peter Pan. Margaret Carey was the live-action model for the silent character Tinkerbell, which I think we all know uh, Margaret Carey did that. And although she never speaks, the animators used Carey as the model to help them draw her movements. So you're really seeing Carey on the film. And if you've ever seen any of those clips of her performing, it's, it's fantastic. You need to look that up on YouTube. Catherine Beaumont was Wendy Darling, Paul Collins as John Darling, one of Wendy's two younger siblings, and he's actually the older Darling's son, and he's eight years old, but uh, acts very mature for his age. Tommy Lusk is Michael Darling, the youngest of the three Darling children, who is about four years old. Uh, he carries a teddy bear with him, uh, and he's extremely sensitive. Uh, he's also a little clumsy and very playful. I mean, he's, he's four. Of course, he's a little clumsy. Hans Conried is John Darling. Uh, that's the Darling's father. He also played Captain Hook, which I love because in the original production, the original play, that is how uh, J.M. Barry wrote it, that the Darling father also plays Captain Hook. So they kept that true to the original, which I love. Heather Angel is Mary Darling, which is the Darling's uh, mother. Bill Thompson as Mr. Smee, Hook's first mate. 
uh, and personal assistant. He's obviously the comic relief of the story. He's my favorite character in the story, honestly. I think he's hysterical. And then there's the Lost Boys, which which are Peter Pan's right-hand boys, I guess, not really men. And they're all dressed as various animals, and their names are Slightly, who is in the fox costume, Cubby in the bear costume, Nibs, the rabbit costume, Toodles, the skunk costume, and Twins, raccoon costumes. Uh, their, orig- their origin remains a mystery in the very savage-like boys who get into fights easily uh, with each other. Uh, but they have a common goal to strive for, and they act as one when they, you know, when Peter directs them to. And Toodles never speaks. But uh, Robert Ellis w- was Cubby, Jeffrey Silvers was Nibs, Johnny McGovern as the twins, Stuffy Singer as Slightly, and Tony B- Butala as the singing voices of the boys. June Foray, Connie Hilton, Margaret Carey, and Karen Kester were the mermaids. Uh, June Foray was the squaw. I hate that name, but that's what they called her. The squaw, the wife of the Indian chief and Tiger Lily's mother. Bill Thompson was the other pirates. Candy Candido was the Indian chief, um, big chief, uh, the leader of the Indians. Tom Conway was the narrator. And the Mellow Men... Uh, which is Thurl's Ravenscroft, Bill Lee, Bob Stevens, and Max Smith as the pirate chorus and the Indians. So really well cast, really well done uh, as far as that's concerned. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, you know, I think the voice characterizations are great. And they have become what we think of when we think of those. And all future productions of anything Peter Pan has really relied on what Disney did in this movie. The music has an interesting history because the movie has such a long history of production. Frank Churchill wrote several songs for the film um, during the early 40s, and Charles Walcott wrote additional songs in 41. But when the re- when the work on Peter Pan resumed in 1944, Elliot Daniel composed songs for the film. However, this version of the film, Peter Pan, was shelved so the studio could complete Cinderella. I would love to hear some of that music. I need to find some of that music. If you know where I can find that music, please let me know. Elliot Daniels' uh, music composed for the film. In April of 1950, Sammy Kahn and Sammy Thane were composing songs for Peter Pan. And the incidental music score for the movie is composed by Oliver Wallace. Um, and we're actually going to listen to Oliver Wallace late at the end of this, uh, at the review of the movie, Um, And the music, because we've got uh, a song that he sings called the Boatswain's Song, uh, and it's very cute. I like it. I'm sorry that it got cut from the film. I understand why it got cut, but I'm sorry that it did. It's so cute. Uh, And Sammy Kahn and Sammy Fain are great songwriters and really wrote some beautiful music, I think, for this. I think the complaint early that the music wasn't great, I, I just don't understand that criticism. Uh, Because I think some of this music is really, really good. Now that we've got all that background out of the way, let's talk about the plot and the music. Let's go through it. So the film starts out with the song Second Star to the Right, uh, which I absolutely love. Um, I think it's just uh, such a nice piece of music. Um, the background vocals are by the Judd Conlon Chorus, who do all the background voices, the vocals with the Mellow Men um, on this recording and on this movie. So the words are by Sammy Kahn and music by Sammy Fain, uh, each of them in their own right, brilliant composers, 
of songs. Uh, Sammy Khan, Come Fly With Me, worked with, you know, the greats, really. I, I, I could go on and on about, about Sammy Khan. And Sammy Fain, um, earlier than Sammy Khan, but still had great success on Broadway writing songs. Now, the melody for Second Star to the Right was originally written for Alice in Wonderland, and it was called Beyond the Laughing Sky. But it eventually was taken out and decided to be used for Peter Pan, which I love. I think it starts off the movie so well. It's it's just beautiful that it, it kind of establishes this fantasy feeling that we're already in a story that may not be real, right? We're talking about the second star to the right, dreaming, you know, wishing upon a star. They throw in twinkle, twinkle, little star. Um, I just think it's really well done. I also want to talk a little bit about the Judd Conlon chorus and the Mellow Men in this recording. And I'm only going to talk about this once uh, because they sing a lot in this. Uh, but I love the quality of this recording and the quality of all of the chorus work that Disney has during this time. First of all, you can tell that it's all done in one big room, uh, that they are not each individually mic'd and, you know, auto-tuned and you know, all the things that are done today uh, to music. Um, it's just a chorus that's singing. And I actually like the, the quality of not being perfectly clean. It's not a perfectly clean piece of music, singing-wise. Um, it's beautifully sung. Uh, but there are little little goobers here and there. Uh, it's, not, it's not flawless. And I, I really, really like that um, quality about it. It makes it very real, very present, very much so uh, like they're, you know, you're listening to them sing it for the first time um, live. I, I, I just love it. And it may have been the first time live. Who knows? Uh, but I really like that. I also just love the, the lyrics of Second Star to the Right. I think it's a beautiful way to start this off. So let's listen to the opening and, and uh, a little bit of Second Star to the Right. The second star to the right shines in the night for you. To tell you that the dreams you planned really can come true. The second star to the right shines with a light so rare. And if it's never land to me, this light will lead you there. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, so we'll know where you So we're in London, it's around 1900, and George and Mary Darling are preparing to attend a party, uh, but they are d disrupted by the boys and all of their antics in their play. John and Michael are acting out a story about Peter Pan and the pirates uh, that Wendy told them. Uh, George is fed up with the stories and that have made his children less, quote, practical. Uh, he angrily declares that Wendy has gotten too old to continue staying in the nursery with them. Uh, that was just a shock to everyone, including his wife, Mary, uh, and Nana, the dog. 
uh, who takes care of them. Just a complete shock. And that night, they are, nur- they are visited in the nursery by Peter Pan himself, who teaches the children to fly. And that brings us to a next song called You Can Fly. Iconic. Iconic. Words by Sammy Kahn, music by Sammy Fain, uh, with the voices of Bobby Driscoll, Catherine Beaumont, Paul Collins, Tom Lusk. Uh, we again have the Jed Conlon chorus and the Mellowman in the background vocals. Uh, this is iconic Disney. We can all see them flying over the city of London um, on this. And, and you know, you can also think about the ride in Disneyland and this moment now, where you are think of the where you fly days. out of the nursery it's the same as over the skyline of London. Uh, it's so iconic. The they land on Big Ben. Jim, I mean. It's beautiful. Oh, and the, the words and what they represent. Because it's not really about It's about reaching on, for your dreams and that Here you can do go. anything. So let's listen to a little bit of Up to Neverland. Think of a wonderful thought, any merry little thought. Think of Christmas, think of snow, think of sleigh bells, off you go like reindeer in the sky. You can fly, you can fly, you can fly. So I said, as I said, Peter Pan comes and teaches them to fly with a little help from his pixie friend, Tinkerbell, uh, and takes them uh, with him to the island of Neverland. Um, a ship of pirates is anchored in the Neverland Bay, uh, and it's commanded by Captain Hook and his sidekick, sidekick Mr. Smee. And we hear, uh, you know, that Hook wants to plot revenge on Peter Pan for cutting off his hand. And we first meet the pirates. They're singing a song called A Pirate's Life. Great fun song. Uh, great introduction to the pirates. It kind of gives you the idea that they're not really seriously bad pirates. kind of gives you that feel and that flavor. Uh, certainly Mr. Smee in this number gives you that idea. So let's listen to a little bit of A Pirate's Life. Oh, and uh, just a little word about it. The words are by Ed Penner, and the music is by Oliver Wallace. So it is not a Sammy Kahn, Sammy Fain 
piece of music. It's it's uh, Ed Penner and Oliver Wallace, and we'll talk about Oliver Wallace in just a little bit because he also wrote the score for the movie. But let's listen to a little bit of the Pirates. Song. As I said, Hook wants to plot revenge on Peter Pan for cutting off his hand, and he trembles when he hears about the crocodile that ate Cook's hand and is eager to get a taste of the rest of uh, Captain Hook. Uh, The crew's restlessness is interrupted by the arrival of Peter Pan uh, and the Darlings. Tinkerbell, who is very jealous of Pan's attention to Wendy, um, convinces the Lost Boys uh, that Pan has ordered them to shoot down Wendy, which Tink refers to as Wendy Bird. Uh, Tinkerbell's treachery is soon found out, and Peter, Peter banishes her. And then John and Michael set off with the Lost Boys uh, to find the island's Indians. And they sing a song called Following the Leader. I personally love this song, and whenever anybody talks about Follow the Leader, this is the song I go to. Uh, or even at goofy times when I'm just following somebody, I'll start singing Following the Leader. Um, I think it's pretty pretty well known uh, and just a fun, fun piece of music. Uh, and it visually is a lot of fun, too. The words uh, were by Winston Hibbler and Ted Sears. Uh, and so... Uh, and it's sung by the boys and the lost boys. I really enjoy it. Fun piece of music, fun piece of imagery of them playing Fall of the Leader uh, on the beginning of this journey. So let's listen to a little bit of Following the Leader. So, uh, they're on in search for the Indians, or the Native Americans that live on this island, uh, who instead of getting captured, instead of capturing the Indians, the Indians capture them, uh, because they believe that they're the ones responsible for taking the chief's daughter, Tiger Lily. Uh, meanwhile, Peter takes Wendy to see the mermaids, uh, and the mischievous mermaids delight in tormenting Wendy, uh, but flee when they see Hook. And part of the reason they delight in tormenting Wendy is that he, they love Peter Pan and they are um, jealous that Wendy is getting Peter Pan's attention and special treatment. But Peter and Wendy see that Hook and Smee have captured Tiger Lily and uh, so that they can persuade 
uh, Tiger Lily to disclose Peter's hide, hide, hideout, which Tiger Lily would never, ever do. Anyway, Peter and Wendy free her, and Peter is honored uh, by the tribe. So this is where this movie gets a little uh, uncomfortable in our current thinking uh, in today's world. Uh, this is the song, What Makes the Red Man Red? Uh, I think even the title of the song should tell you kind of how this song goes. Um, The words are by Sammy Kahn and the music by Sammy Fain. It really, really is all about racist stereotypes of Native Americans um, and really kind of offensive. I think that may be part of the reason that we don't keep it in our heads and we don't think about it a lot. But I just just struggle with the song every time it's on. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, you know, the language that they use in it uh, is very offensive. The, the fact that uh, Native Americans became intelligent and learned just by saying how. Um, the fact that they turned red because they were blushing. Just countless things that are offensive. So we're going to listen to a little bit of it because it is in the movie and I think it's important to listen to it. So let's just take a listen to it. Uh, and, you know, you can draw your own conclusions of what you think about the song and how it fits into our current sensibilities. Here is what made the red man red. So, Hook then plans to uh, take advantage of Tinkerbell's jealousy of Wendy and tricked her into revealing the location of Peter's lair. Uh, Wendy and her brothers are eventually growing homesick. Uh, And this is where the beautiful song, Your Mother and Mine, comes in. Um, I do love this piece of music. Uh, Your Mother and Mine, uh, words by Sammy Kahn, music by Sammy Fain, and it's sung by Catherine Beaumont. I think it's a beautiful song. I think she sings it beautifully. It really captures the moment of uh, remembering where they are and and who they are and where they're from and the fact that their mother loves them and, and is missing them and that they need to go back. It's really, really beautiful. Let's listen to a little bit of Your Mother and Mine. The helping hand that guides you along, whether you're right, whether you're wrong, your mother and mine, your mother. Makes my 
So after the song, they plan their return home, and they invite Peter and the Lost Boys to return to London with them to be adopted by their parents. Um, the Lost Boys agree to go because obviously Wendy has sung this beautiful song, uh, but Peter is so set against growing up that he refuses to go and believes that they will all return very shortly. Uh, but what they don't know is that the pirates lie in wait to capture the Lost Boys and the Darlings as they exit and take them to their ship. Uh, we then have a song called The Elegant Captain Hook, uh, which is so funny because it's, you know, trying to convince the Lost Boys and Wendy and Michael and John to join the pirates. Uh, it's very clever, very clever language is used in it. Uh, I love the tune of it. It kind of has the same feel as... Song, Pirate's Life, and it tries to paint Hook as this nice man. But really, what they're saying is if you don't join, you're going to walk away. So it's very. Uh, the words are by Sam Khan, the by Sam Fane. Um, and it's, it's just a lot of fun. So let's listen to a little bit of The Elegant Captain. As special off a thought today, I'll tell you what I'll do. All those who sign without delay will get a free tattoo. Why, it's like money in the bank. Come on, join up and I'll be frank. Unless you do, you'll walk the plank. The choice is up to you. The choice is up to you. Yo-ho, 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 yo-ho. You'll love the life of a thief. You'll relish the life of a crook. The trails of fun for everyone. And you get treasured by the time. In the meantime, um, Captain Hook has left a time bomb to kill Peter. Uh, Tinkerbell learns of the plot just in time to snatch the bomb from Peter as it explodes. So Peter has to rescue Tinkerbell from the, rubber, from the rubble, and together they confront the pirates, releasing the children before they can walk the plank. Uh, what happens is that Wendy goes to walk the plank, and when she goes off the end of the plank, there's no splash, and the pirates completely freak out. 
Peter engages Hook in single combat, and the children fight off the crew and succeed in humiliating Captain Hook. Hook and his crew flee with the crocodile hot in pursuit. Uh, Peter gallantly commandeers the deserted ship and, assisted by Tinkerbell's pixie dust, flies to London with the children on board. However, the Lost Boys decide to return to Neverland rather than be adopted in London. Uh, George and Mary Darling return home uh, from the party to find Wendy not in her bed, but sleeping at the open window. Wendy awakens and excitedly tells them about uh, their adventures, and the parents look out the window to see what appears to be a pirate ship in the clouds. George, who has softened his positions about Wendy staying in the nursery, recognizes the ship from his own childhood. And that's how the movie ends. And I think it's beautiful. I think they do a lovely job with the ending of it. Um, and it there's a reprise of You Can Fly at the end. Uh, of course, we know that's by Sammy Kahn and Sammy Fain. Um, and it's just such a lovely moment uh, at the end of that movie. I, I really love the way this ends and how it, how it ties it up. Uh, there are a couple of extra songs on the 90, 1997 release of this recording, and one of them is Never Smile at a Co- Crocodile, uh, which we hear in the movie, but we don't hear the words. We don't hear them sing. Whenever we see the crocodile, this is what they play. Uh, the words are by Jack Lawrence, and the music is by Frank Churchill. They also, The song also appears in the Sing Along Songs video series, um, and maybe that's why we all know it so well. But we do definitely know this song. So let's listen to a little bit of Never Smile at a Crocodile. Never tip your hat and stop to talk. Never run, walk away, say good night, not good day. Clear the island, never smile at Mr. Crocodile. You may very well be well bred. Lots of etiquette in your head. But there's always some special case, time or place, to forget etiquette. For example, one positively must not wear a pleased expression on his countenance when confronted with that large lizard-like amphibious reptile who has long jaws, armored skin, and webbed feet, and who is known as the crocodile. It has been discovered that one simply cannot cherish an amicable or trustworthy relationship with the aforementioned species. In addition, it is mandatory that one does not become irresistibly drawn into the erroneous belief that the lateral awkward extension of his lips means that you are entirely welcome. It is much more reasonable to assume that he is contemplating how you would look in a lizard suit. His. <laughs> Clear the aisle and never smile at Mr. Crock. All right. Uh, And the last thing I want to listen to um, is I want to listen to uh, a song written by Oliver Wallace um, called The Boatswain's Song. I just think we need to listen to it because it's been excluded. I think it's very clever, some very clever lyrics. And, you know, it's fun to hear Oliver Oliver Wallace playing piano and singing this song. Um, Something you don't hear very often is a composer singing their own music in a demo version of it. So let's listen to a little bit of the Boatswain song. Swing that boom to the mizzen mast. Swap that galley, man that gun. And when they give the signal, shoot the sun. Oh, the boat 
listens the fellow, all the sailors obey, for he gives all his orders in a musical way. Oh, it sounds mighty pretty when he bosses the crew, for he's got a little whistle that's nice to listen to. When the bosun pipes a tune, he always serenades you with a chanty you can croon. There's a twinkle in his eye, and nobody can deny that when he starts to play right away, it's hotter than the 4th of July. Just to show you his skill, first he'll blow you a trill, then he'll give you a thrill with a tweet, tweet, tweet that can't be beat. All your cares are forgotten. Every time you listen to that jolly old bosun piping a tune for you. I think that song has such a great feel, such a great sound to it, and um, really uh, keeps true to, you know, a pirate's life and the elegant uh, Captain Hook. Uh, I just think it's really great, and I would have loved to have seen it in the movie. I understand why they cut it, but it is so much fun. And to hear, I think Mr. Smee would probably end up singing this song with the pirates. I just think it would be a lot of fun. I also want to address uh, Oliver Wallace's score. Now, Oliver Wallace wrote so many scores for animated movies for Disney, um, from Allison, I mean, from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, uh, and on. Uh, and usually, I have issues with Oliver Wallace's scores because they don't really um, incorporate songs from the score. You know, songs that we hear them singing, uh, and they don't have like motifs for um, different characters. Uh, and by a motif, I just mean a, a small melody, a small musical melody or just a few notes that remind us of a character. But in this movie, I think he does such a fantastic job of in incorporating uh, melodies from songs that we've heard um, and having different motives for uh, motifs for different characters. Peter Pan has his own motif. Uh, Tinkerbell has a motif. Um, I, I just think he does a really great job of mixing that all in. And, and, and he does his usual, you know, oh, it's a cartoon and we're going to be funny, so I'm going to do some funny music here and I'm going to do, you know, some trembling music because we're, you know, going to capture the Lost Boys. Uh, but I, I really think on a whole he really stepped up his game in this in this score and does a beautiful job with it uh, and I just wanted to say that I wanted to give him credit for uh, the great work that he's doing and he's come such a long way uh, in his scores so a lot of fun to listen to um, really adds to this piece uh, and, and it's very enjoyable so thumbs up to Oliver Wallace I, I enjoy it a lot
So that concludes this episode of the Magic Music Review about Peter Pan. Um, I hope you had a good time. I certainly had a good time doing it. I love this movie. I love this score. It uh, has some of my favorite Disney songs and some of the most iconic Disney songs in the book of music that Disney has. Uh, so um, there's a lot to uh, to listen to here. Uh, while not that many songs, it's just great music and just loads of fun. Um, I would love to hear from you. I want this to be a conversation, not just a lecture, as I always say. Uh, let me know what you liked, what you didn't like, and, and what you'd like to hear in future podcasts. Uh, you can reach me on Facebook, at Magic Music Review, or on Twitter, I'm the Disney Music Dude. You can also go to my website, magicmusicreview.com, and leave a comment about any of the episodes that I've got listed there. Also, I would appreciate if you go to iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and give the Magic Music Review podcast a five-star rating and just write a quick review. Um, I would really appreciate it. It helps get the word out and helps others find this podcast when they're searching. So thanks again for listening. I hope you had a great time. I certainly enjoyed doing it. And I'll talk to you next time on the Magic Music Review. A friendship will never die You're gonna see it's our destiny You got a friend in me You got a friend in me You got a friend in me Now it's time to say goodbye to all our company. M I C. See you real soon. K E Y. Why? Because we like you. M-I-C.